Welcome to Never Again Is Now, a podcast about anti-Semitism. America has an active neo-Nazi movement. In this episode, we discuss this with a former member of this movement who now fights it. I'm Evelyn Marcus, and in addition to being a psychologist, I'm featured in the documentary about anti-Semitism, Never Again Is Now. I am a Dutch Jew and a daughter of Holocaust survivors. In 2006, I emigrated to the United States because of the rising anti-Semitism in Europe. I am Phyllis Zimbler Miller. I'm the founder of the free nonfiction Holocaust theater project, ThinEdgeTheWedge.com, with firsthand testimonies of survivors and saviors. I grew up in Elgin, Illinois, a Midwestern town in which the small Jewish community was not Holocaust survivors, but our parents and grandparents had fled the Tsar and other programs of the, of the 20th century. And yet, in September 1970, my U.S. Army officer husband and I were stationed in Munich, Germany, and this changed our lives as Jews forever. Our guest today, Jeff Scoop, is an extremism expert. He's the former head of the largest neo-Nazi movement in the United States, the violently anti-Semitic National Socialist Movement. He's now a consultant for the Simon Wiedenthal Center on preventing extremism. And he's an inspirational speaker. In January 2020, Jeff Scoop founded Beyond Barriers, a nonprofit that is committed to countering and preventing extremism. Jeff, welcome. We're excited to have you on our show. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Jeff, what, what attracted you to becoming a neo-Nazi? Well, my story was basically um, when I was uh, very young, I had, uh, I had learned that my grandfather fought in the German army during World War II. My great uncles fought as well. Um, and that was that was my uh, original fascination with it. I wasn't uh, brought up to hate or taught racism or anything like that by my family. In fact, quite the opposite. Um, but uh, knowing that that family history, I, I found it to be uh, interesting. And um, I sought out the movement and, and wanted to be part of it. And once after I joined, then the propaganda and the hate and everything else uh, followed. Um, so that was my, my trajectory was a little different than a lot of Americans as uh, my mother and grandparents had come over to, to the U.S. Uh, after the, after World War Two. I see. So your, your, your grandparents were from Germany and uh, fought in the in the Second World War at the German side. And that made you interested in becoming. Yes. Yeah. Did they talk about it or or, or about Nazism at, at, to you when you were a child? No, it was kind of a forbidden or a taboo subject in our in our household, especially like my grandmother would talk about it a little bit. Um, when I and it was it was me that was pressing on it, you know, always trying to learn more and find out. Um, but even when I get uh, when I did get them to talk about it, they didn't talk about necessarily Nazism. Like my grandfather would talk about the battles and different things that he was in. Mm -hmm and uh war stories which is mainly what i was interested in anyways because of of my interest in history and and things of that nature so um as far as i know nobody in the family was even nazi party members but they were in the in the german army the my uncles and, and grandfather were yes right right how did your family react when you became very active in the neo-nazi party 
Oh, it was, uh, it was horrible. It was horrible for my family. And, and this is uh, something I think a lot of people don't, don't realize or don't think about, but, you know, we all know what hate and anti-Semitism and all that ha does to civil society and does to uh, the people that it's, it's targeting and, and uh, it's, it's destructive, it's chaos, it's, it's, uh, it's awful. But a lot of times people don't think about what does it do to the, you know, the people that are involved in it. It's also very toxic for them. But um, what about the families? What about the people that are attached to, to, to those individuals that didn't have a choice that weren't involved in it? Um, it affected my family uh, greatly. It, it uh, literally destroyed my mother's career. Um, she was an attorney and um, had been elected to be a judge in the state of Minnesota. And this was back in the 90s when I was uh, early in, earlier in, in my involvement. And the way it was explained to me by my mother was basically that um, there was a formality. Every state's a little different when it comes to this uh, judge judgeships and things. And um, she explained that uh, there was a formality where the governor of the state would sign off. You know, basically, it's just a formality where the, they would sign off on all the new judges. Well, my mother got a phone call from the governor at the time, and uh, he said, Mrs. Scoop, your father uh, fought in the German army during World War II. Your son is involved in uh, is a leader in the Nazi movement. We don't think you're fit to be a judge in, in this state. And uh, I carry a lot of guilt and, and regret and shame over that. Um, and it, it really damaged my family. That was my mother's dream, you know, so... And unfortunately, she did not get to see uh, the change or me leave that uh, movement because she passed away uh, just before I uh, just as I was going through the process of of starting to leave. And, um, you know, so it's it's uh, it is really difficult. And that's just one that's just one aspect of how it damaged my family. There's other um, examples I could share as well. But that that one was the one that hit the hardest. And you would think like looking looking back, you'd say, well, Jeff, why wasn't that enough to like shake you out of this? Like, wh why didn't you leave then if it's doing that to your family? I doubled down. It, it made me angry. It was like, all right, if this is what they're going to if they're going to go after my family, I'm going to go twice as hard into this. I'm going to I'm going to fight twice as hard. So it's like every time I was pushed, I pushed back twice as hard. Wow. Okay, Evelyn's a psychologist, but we don't have time to discuss. That's really interesting. But how um, prevalent is neo-Nazism in the United States right now? I shared, I'm going to share this now, that in the uh, winter quarter at Michigan State of 1967, the university officially invited George Lequin Rockwell, who was the head of the neo-Nazi, neo American neo-Nazi party, to speak on campus officially. And my to be future husband, we both went in this, on the newspaper, wrote an editorial, and we showed up at the um, talk. We didn't protest it, but we wore armbands. And that was when I learned for the first time, I was 21 years old, how you can string three sentences together that, that are true by themselves and come out with horrible lies. So um, Evelyn's you know, European, so I was sharing this with her because I've been aware of neo-Nazism from at a very young age. So how prevalent is it? And is this growing now in the United States? I, th I think it is. I mean, it's it's been in the United States since, I mean, before World War II, they had the German-American Bund, the Silver Shirts, organizations like that. Rockwell was the was the founder of the American Nazi Party um, and the predecessor to the organization that I that I used to be a part of. 
Um, so that was, you know, it's, it's, it's an old, uh, ideology that's here, but it's, it's very prevalent. And, and, uh, today in today's society, it takes different shapes and forms. You know, um, some will be openly call themselves national socialists or Nazis. Others, um, are embracing the ideals, ideals of that, but are trying to be more, uh, you know, not use the symbolism and things like that. Try to appear to be more patriotic or, or things like that. But it's it's quite prevalent. It's always been a, a running uh, under an undercurrent, I, I would say, in the country. But it's always there, not just here, but abroad as well. And um, it's something that we should all be aware of and and uh, you know take a stand against. So, how big is this movement, including the undercurrent? It's really difficult to say because no one, no one in these uh, organizations, you know, ever, ever like releases their numbers. And sometimes when they, when they do, they'll say, oh, we have a thousand people in this one little town or, or you know, they exaggerate sometimes. And uh, so it's, it's very difficult. And even, even the organization that I was in, I was always uh, my kryptonite, so to speak, or my weakness has always been math. Um, so when people had asked, well, what are the numbers in the group? I never had a handle on that either. So I, I just never, never had a handle on it. But I could say over the years, there was thousands of people that came and went just in the organization that I was a part of. Okay. Um, in your former life, how did your neo-Nazi organization view Jews and what did the followers do to Jews? Jews were the in the organization that I was a part of. Jews were the were the group of people that were vilified the most. Um, Anti-Semitism was the strongest uh, was the strongest uh, uh, hatred I would say that was that was involved in that in that organization and in any typically any group that would classify itself as national socialist or Nazi. That's the that's the undercurrent and and uh, it's it's almost to try to explain how how bad that is like literally everything every problem every every societal issue anything like that it was always brought back and blamed on the jews so um and this is a slight over exaggeration but i could knock over a cup of coffee and uh, you'd say oh well that was the jews you know like it was it it, and that's a slight exaggeration, but that's that's literally almost how bad it was that um, if there was crime in a community that was done by another race or something, you'd say, well, the Jews were behind it. You know, it was always it was uh, the ultimate scapegoat in that sense. And it, and it's really uh, it's it's nonsensical, but um, that's that's the belief. That's how it works. Were there also actions from the movement from coming from people within the movement towards Jews or Jewish um property or in institutions there there was some incidents over the years typically the organization that i was a part of typically was uh what we what you would call an above ground organization so the the um the idea was not to break laws and things like that so if you if you broke laws it could and, and that wasn't coming from a moral standpoint i wish i could say it was um, but that was coming from, hey, people will get arrested, we'll go to jail, that sort of thing. Uh, so don't break the laws. And um, that's not to say there wasn't individuals over the years that lashed out on their own outside of the organization and did terrible things. I remember cases of uh, over the years where someone would uh, graffiti a synagogue or something or or do different things, uh, terrible things like that. And, and there's... Uh, you know, if you look across the whole spectrum of the extreme far right or the neo-Nazi movement, you ha you've had mass shooters, you've had all kinds of, of uh, horrible things that have happened 
uh, over the years. So although the, I, I could say the organization I was a part of discouraged any kind of illegal activities or things like that, there was still um, things like that that happened. And from a psychological standpoint, and I found this interesting as well, is um, one of the things that I had noticed is when I was a part of this organization, like every time there was a mass shooting or something terrible happened, you know, I would, you know, try to go quick and look over the membership list and go, oh, God, I hope it's not one of the people that somebody that's part of the group or somebody that I knew or or something like that. And never in all those times did I think something was wrong with the ideology. I always thought and, and a lot of the people that were involved in it, too, we'd always dismiss that sort of thing and say, gosh, I can't believe that guy went crazy and did those things. Like we thought those people were nuts and that's that's why they went and did those things. But the reality of it, and if that would have happened, like say once, maybe twice, you could, you could uh, that might make sense. But when it happens again and again and again and again, people attached to this ideology keep doing it. It's not that they're nuts. It's there's something wrong with the ideology that's driving them to do these terrible things. And and that's something I didn't process or figure out until after I left that life and, and was able to make sense of it. Because when I was there, it was always that guy was crazy. That's right. that's how we looked at that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. Which is too easy an explanation, right? Right. Um, it's the ideology that, that, that many people believe in and then one of them will take action upon it and, and yeah. lash out. So is what we have all heard about, of course, was the the shooting in the Pittsburgh Tree of Life synagogue. Uh, I think it was 2017. Um, was the, the the shooting in the uh, in the synagogue near San Diego? Poway. Uh, is it, Poway? Yes. Is that were those perpetrators you think did they belong to this neo-nazi movement or or the groups that are kind of allied with it they were uh those individuals specifically were were not involved not per se in the organization that i was involved in but they were involved in some sort of uh of extreme far right or neo-nazi ideology uh the one in poway i don't remember exactly the guy who was behind that and i don't name them and there's a reason i don't do that because they want to be considered martyrs and right, things like right that. that's but, fine we don't name yeah. so but but we can name that what the incidents right. I, i think is, is important and in pittsburgh though the guy there i think was affiliated with some of the alt-right and 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 uh uh organizations but um both did come out of that extreme ideology yes and um we, we also hear um that swastikas are you know people find flyers with swastikas at their dorms on campus or uh, in their front yard in beverly hills is that also coming from that movement the the neo-nazi movement or or a movement that is close to it That yes, that's common for the neo-Nazi movement and for uh, similar movements to pass out literature. It's one of the recruitment methods is to is to get that out there. And then if the media picks up on the stories, then it doubles their doubles or triples or quadruples their opportunity to get that message out there. So um, unfortunately, yes, that's one of their ways of spreading the propaganda. Okay. Um, what is it that appeals to people? 
about neo-Nazism? Why do people join that movement? For for different people, it's it's different things. You know, like for me, it was that historical connection. It was that historical curiosity. And even in the work that I'm doing now with the de-radicalization and, and helping people to uh, disengage, you learn that people's, everybody's story is a little bit different. Sometimes it, it's just a sense of belonging where they're, they want to be part of a, of a group, a family type uh, organization, something that, um, you know, makes them feel important or feel uh, like they're doing something important, the, that sort of thing. Um, uh, a lot of times uh, people that are that are lonely and kind of on their own and, and they're being radicalized online is, is we're seeing a lot of that. A lot of the uh, mass shooters and people that have went off and, and struck out and done these terrible things are have typically not been actual members of organizations uh, for the most part. They've been people that have been radicalized on their own online and then lashed out and, and did those things. So um, it's it, there's so many different reasons why people people joins for some. And, and it was something I was curious about when I was running the organization when I was running the organization that I was a part of as well, where we would ask people why they joined. For some, it was a bad experience with a minority. For others, it was a political reason. Like there was people that were joining that were saying, hey, the NSM is is uh, fighting illegal immigration. Um, I, I didn't think I'd ever join the Nazis, but this is, you know, you guys are doing something about it. So I want to get involved. So there was people joining for all different reasons. And some, it was a deep-seated hatred, but typically it was more um, people thinking they were doing something good and wanting to be politically active. Uh, for me, it was that too. And it's, it's certainly not good, but um, it's, that's, a, that's a false pretense. Basically, they, they feel they're doing something good and noble, just like any person that joins a cult. They think they've got this great uh, grand epiphany and this knowledge where they've joined this this uh, movement or this cult and they don't see it that way. I didn't see it that way. I compare the movement now uh, to a to a cult. But when I was involved, uh, different uh, ladies that I was dating one after another that were not part of the movement, they would say, Jeff, this is a cult. This is like a cult that you're involved in. And I, I kept thinking, what is wrong? Why do I keep choosing these bad girls? Why do they keep saying these things to me? I'm making such poor choices in, in, in women. It wasn't them. It was me. I was the one that couldn't see the see, th see the forest through the trees. They were right from, from the start and I, and I was missing it. The radicalized individual or the cult member doesn't see these things. They uh, they think they're part of something great, and and uh, so that's that's part of the understanding that is is part of uh, being able to break through and and break those uh, uh, false narratives and help bring somebody out is to understand those things. Right. So the intention is mostly the intention is to be a good person, not to be a bad person. Typically, yes. Yeah. Yes. Um. So it's interesting what you just said about uh, illegal immigration. Um, when I was still living in Europe, um, we suddenly got massive uh, immigration uh, from the Middle East. And people in, in Europe, the receiving countries, were not used to immigration at all, like, like America is used to it, but certainly not to seeing their whole town uh, change culture. Um, and they didn't uh, make the choice that that would happen. It just happened to them, right? So people felt threatened 
culturally. Um, and what happened then is what I heard was the remarks about immigration and, and people from the Middle East, and it was not positive. Um, and my fear was having that antenna as a as a as a child of a of a Holocaust survivor. My 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 fear was that that negative attitude would also at some point uh, include the Jews because if if in in Europe it was mostly about Muslim immigration, so if Muslims are not wanted in town then Jews soon also will not be wanted in town. Um, so, and we and we do see uh, a rise of anti-Semitism in Europe, not only coming from Muslim immigrants, but also in general, because there is a, an anti-other animus that is triggered by massive immigration that people did not really vote for. Um, so do my fear is always if we have massive unmanaged immigration and, and towns and neighborhoods start to change culturally, that could also increase in the margin of anti-immigrant animus in the margin, you'll get people who go that far that they join a white supremacist or or neo-Nazi movement. Is is that correct? Absolutely. And these organizations, and I can say from like a propaganda standpoint, they take advantage of any situation like that that might appeal to things like that. So as I as I mentioned, there was people that were joining that said, I never thought I would join a, the Nazi party. And, and I don't know why you guys, and they, some of would even say, I don't know why you don't like Jews. It doesn't make sense to me. And, um, you know, but you guys are standing up against illegal immigration. So, you know, we found that interesting. And then, of course, we exploited that because it was like, well, now we're 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 picking up a new demographic that we weren't picking up before. Or we go into communities where there was a racial crime or something where blacks had killed some white people and exploit that or anything, anything else that might appeal to people or that would uh, whip up emotions or things like that. So these type of, and that's not, that's not uh, um, unique to the NSM alone. This is, this is something that these groups are very uh, good at spotting these type of things and exploiting that. And a lot of the hot button issues are issues that regular people care about that are not racist or anti-Semitic or anything like that. And they're going in there and they're pulling they're pulling uh, people out of those, uh, you know, to the mainstream and going more extreme. We're seeing that in the U.S. right now with the political polarization, mm. where both both sides, the right and the left, are getting more and more extreme. And the voices of the most extreme are being uplifted, where everybody else that was kind of in the middle, left and right, center, this area, is being marginalized. And these voices way out here are being uplifted. And it's it's really dangerous because uh, people are feeling more and more like they have to choose or they have to pick. And this is, uh, you know, there was that old saying that said, well, you know, when you're talking about the Muslims and the and the Jews there in Europe, and, and you, talk, you talk about um, where it says, well, first they came for this group. And then they came for that group. That's exactly what I thought of when you mentioned that, because it's like, okay, well, now it's it's the Muslims there, but it could be the Jews next. It could be somebody else next. And this is why it's important for all of us in society 
when we see somebody being marginalized or or uh, shot down, even if they're not somebody we necessarily agree with or um, uh, understand their lifestyle choices or whatever it is, is is to be an upstander and not a bystander and say something like that's not okay. So that brings me to the main main question: What caused you to leave this ideology? Love, love over hate, compassion, um, and seeing literally seeing the humanity in the people that I once vilified. It was meeting with um, the the major seeds that were planted were were done by Daryl Davis, an African American, and Dia Khan, a, a Muslim filmmaker, and uh, meeting with them. And what they did is they didn't um, and living here in Detroit, too, because white people are the minority here. So I had met uh, I met a lot of people. But I talk about Dia and Daryl because they're public figures and they're OK with me sharing <laughs> their names and stories. But uh, what Daryl had done and Dia did the same thing. But they had talked to me about how racism affected them as children and how that how that made them feel. So Daryl's talking about how he was in a Boy Scout parade as an African-American and uh, when he was a child and he was pelted with rocks by white adults and how that his parents had to explain to him that that wasn't because they didn't like the Boy Scouts. It was because he was black. And he says, Jeff, for the first time in my life, I thought my parents were lying to me. And uh, he says, how can someone hate me when they don't know me? And that sent him on that journey, too. And I, I'm sitting there hearing this conversation and he wasn't telling me you're wrong you're evil, you're you're stupid or anything like that. He was just sharing with me his personal story about what how it affected him. And I thought about my own children and I thought about, wow, maybe, maybe this isn't such a good thing I'm involved in if this is what it does to people. But I tried to, you know, stuff that down. That happened back at like 2015 or 16. And uh, I thought, well, this is a really nice guy. But I tried to put it out of my head like this is this is something that didn't just happen to Daryl. This has happened to thousands, maybe millions of people across the world. And then when I met with Dia about six months after that, she says, Jeff, the ideology that you were a part of made a little girl feel less than, hated, not worthy, all, all this kind of stuff. And I'd gotten to know her quite well. And um, hearing that, uh, something broke inside. I just felt like it felt like getting kicked in the chest by a horse. It, it was uh, so painful seeing her uh, not just seeing the pain in her face, but feeling it like an energy or a vibe in the air. It was very uh, difficult for me. And that was the end. For me, that was the beginning of the end. It was like, I got to fix this. I, I got to do something. And uh, it, it took a while for me uh, to leave the movement because my business was wrapped up in it. My life, every just about everybody I knew every, that I built, uh, built things up. And then I started making excuses. Well, what am I going to do for work? Because my business is involved in this. What about what if some of the people in the organization go crazy after I leave and they go and um, do terrible things in, in society? Maybe I should stay so I could stop that from happening. Um, you know, I'm going through like a million different things in my head trying to uh, make excuses for it. And finally, I just you know what? I, what I was trying to do was put lipstick on a pig. I was trying to dress up the Nazi party in, into something it could never be. I was convincing myself this is a white civil rights group. It's not a, it's not a hate group. It's this, it's that. I can fix this. And then finally, uh, I was like, what What are you doing? This You can't fix this. There's people that are involved in this that are doing really terrible things in society. And it's not just words. They're, they're taking it beyond that. And you as a human being can't be part of this anymore. You have to do something to uh, 
uh, try to stop uh, this this type of thing. At whatever personal cost or risk, it, it didn't matter. I, I had to do the reason I joined. I thought I was doing something right in the first place. Now it's time to really do something right. And what did you it's do? Amazing. And how do you personally fight hate today? Um, when I left, I when I first left, I retired and I did that. That was a tactical move because I knew once I started speaking, I knew I was going to speak out. But the moment you start speaking out, you know, there's threats, there's other things like that that start coming, uh, coming down the 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 pike, so to speak. And um, I needed times to process my life and and to think things over and, and all that. So at first I retired, then about six months or so after that, I, I felt like it was time to speak out. Then I started speaking out um, and uh, I put up a website. Uh, one of my colleagues put up a website and um, I was getting inundated with people um, wanting to to leave, needing help to get out. Um, when I first left, a lot of the organization, I said, like when I was involved, it was the largest Nazi party in the country. After I left it, it, uh, I don't know what it is now, but I, a lot of people left a lot of the, um, top leadership and, and, uh, key figures in the organization left when I did and, or soon after. So, um, I'm getting all these requests about getting out. I, I can't keep up with this. Um, so eventually in 2020, we started Beyond Barriers, which is, is uh, our nonprofit that helps. Uh, it's works in, we work in peace building and also in uh, extremist disengagement and de-radicalization. So we try to help people get out of that life and give them a, a, you know someone to talk to, someone that's been through that. Um, all the things that I didn't have when I was when I was leaving, because my circle of people that knew I was leaving or uh, that helped with it were you could count them on one hand. My dad, a couple of girls I knew, and and um, of course Daryl Davis and uh, uh, Dia Khan. That was about it. Jeff, what what needs to be done in your view um, by American society to decrease this ideology? The best thing I think we can do, I, I think, uh, preventing preventing this type of thing um, and uh, through education is is a big part of it. Um, bringing people together from all different aspects of, of life. Um, I grew up in rural Minnesota. Um, I didn't have interactions with Jewish people that I knew of. I didn't have interactions with just about any minorities in the area that I grew up in. We had uh, at school one day out of the year where you had this international festival, which everybody loved because it's all these different foods and things like that. You got to experience other cultures and it was fun and, and all that, but it wasn't enough, I feel like. I feel like there should be, um, and I don't know I don't know which class it would be in necessarily, but um, where you have classes where you could discuss different cultures, different different races, their histories and things like that. And and cover all the different countries and ethnicities and, and, um, and let people ask questions, bring, bring a, a speaker in from the Jewish community, bring a speaker in from the Muslim community, the Hindu community, the Sikh community, so on and so forth. So they could answer those questions and let the kids ask any questions they have. I mean, that was one of the things that really helped, you know, uh, for me in the process of leaving was working with the with the Wiesenthal Center and being able to ask all these uh, different people of, of, of uh, the Jewish faith questions 
about about their faith and about their customs and, and things like that. And it was, uh, I tell you what, like when you're in school and it's opposite day, your kids probably all, you know, where you, your shirt's backwards. I felt like my life was opposite day because what I learned about the Jewish people um, and spe specifically, it was almost the opposite of everything that I thought I knew. Could you give an example of that? Ooh, well, I, I can, oh man, there's so many, but I'm, I'm thinking of, of several different uh, short stories. That I'll try to keep it as concise as possible. But the first time I went to a synagogue, would you like to hear that one? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so the first time I went to a synagogue was in Skokie, Illinois. And um, I didn't know what to expect. I was going to be speaking there with another former. And then I had brought two other formers uh, that had been part of the organization I was involved in. One, she was a propagandist. The other was a regional leader, which meant somebody in charge of several states. And um, none of us had been to a synagogue before. And um, so I was there with Simon Wiesenthal Center and another former, and we were talking. And um, I thought, I don't know, like, what was going through my mind, but I thought, I, I don't know how everybody's going to react when I share about my family history and things like that. Are they going to uh, drag me out of the synagogue and throw me out? And, or, you know, or how, what's going to happen? I just didn't know what to think. And um, it, it was very difficult to start talking there about it. And, and um, the rabbi had got up there and was saying things like um, that we were heroic for the you know, speaking out against hate. And, and then I felt bad. Uh, that made me feel bad, actually, because it was like, these are the people that I vilified the most. And afterwards, uh, Phyllis and, and Evelyn, uh, I, I received more hugs at that synagogue than I probably remember anywhere ever in my in in all my days, like all these people coming up and some of them had been Holocaust survivors or family, uh, family of Holocaust, Holocaust survivors. survivors. It was unbelievable. Um, and then, so afterwards, uh, the former, uh, that had invited me there, you know, he says, Jeff, he says, how do you feel? And I said, uh, good, I, I think, you know, and he says, well, don't you feel, do you feel worse now? And I said, what do you mean? Do I feel worse? And he goes, no, do you feel worse about who you were now that you've had that experience? And I was like, oh, yes, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was it was it was uh quite an experience. And the rabbi showed us the the Torah scrolls, and uh, the, one of the guys that was with me, um, he let him handle the scrolls, the sacred scrolls, and all that. And so it was it was a great learning experience. And when I whenever I'm in Chicago speaking, um, to this day, uh, I go out there quite a bit for different different uh, things. I stay at the home of a of an Orthodox Jewish lady wh when I'm there, um, and. Uh, I learned all, you know, the two sinks and all these different things. I, I didn't know anything about all that. So um, I was there and doing the coffee and cream and I was standing over the wrong sink. And and uh, she says, Jeff, Jeff, hold on. And I said, I'm in the right sink. I remember this. And I was just about to pour it out. No, that's the other one. So so I've learned a lot of things about the Jewish culture and and uh, it's it's been a really um, the compassion and 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 love that I've experienced there is is next level. And I feel like I'm not being quiet and and uh, allowing you ladies to talk. But no, no, uh, no, no, no. no. Like, like you're, you're, 
Wonderful. And for those people who are as old as I am, you will remember the whole controversy when the neo-Nazis wanted to march through Skokie many years ago. So I, I, I just applaud you, Jeff, for everything you're doing, but especially speaking in Skokie. My grandparents lived in Skokie. My father's parents lived in Skokie when they were alive. And oh. I just applaud you. So we're coming near the end. I have one more question that we're going to give you last chance. What do you think our individual listeners, can they do anything to have a role in decreasing this ideology, you know, on an individual level, you know, besides giving money to organizations beyond barriers, for example, that's wonderful. But what can we do on an everyday level? I think on an everyday level, I think we just have to be more conscious of 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 um, engage. We call it relational dialogue, but engaging in dialogue and listening. So even with those we disagree with, and, and we all have people in our families or our social circles um, right now, and I talk about this quite a bit, but the political polarization it is a gateway to extremism, whether it's right, left, religious, et cetera, um, any kind of extremism. So if you have people in your families that are saying, well, I'm not talking to this person because they voted Democrat, or I'm not talking to this person because they voted Republican. Um, unfortunately, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, we really didn't have a lot of that. Um, you know, even in even in my family, there was uh, my dad was Republican, my mom was Democrat, and it was no big deal, and that was pretty common. Now you don't see that as much. You 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 uh, talk to people, and they don't want to talk to the other side. I've even discussed this with politicians, and I've had politicians say, "I'm not doing that. I'm not talking to them." Um, so this this is this is uh, a big problem in the country. So I think each of us doesn't matter if if you're uh, influential in society or in your community or not, but um, it certainly helps if we can start bridging those divides because that political polarization leads to um, it leads to scapegoating, it leads to anti-Semitism, it can lead to racism, it can lead to all these different things. So let's be conscious of that. I think and. Uh, work towards more peace building and understanding one another. And that takes listening and it takes, uh, with relational dialogue, it also means not to uh, belittle someone. Um, even if we know they're wrong or it sounds absolutely crazy. And I, I use, sometimes I use QAnon as an example for this and some of their their uh, conspiracy theories where you go, oh my gosh, like how can anybody believe that? And you, instead you try to engage with them and go, well, why, why did you come to that conclusion? Or what do you think about that? And then reframing questions back at them. And, and um, that's, those are little things I think that everybody can do and, and play a role in that sense. Absolutely. Yes, they sound little, but one person change, changing at a time is not little. So unless you want to add anything else, that was such a wonderful ending that I think I will end the program by saying thank you, thank you, thank you. This has been an incredible interview. And thank our listeners for listening. Those of you who have not yet seen Evelyn's documentary, Never Again is Now. I highly recommend it. You can see it on Amazon and YouTube. You can read more about my Thin Edge of the Wedge uh, play at Thin Edge of the Wedge. And I just want to say, as part of my play project in January, I was in my hometown in Elgin, Illinois, and we took high school students to a synagogue for the first time, and they saw the Torah scrolls. And this is a very important experience. So I really appreciated when you talked about that, Jeff. And as always, when we end every program, we say, without putting yourself in physical harm, please, Speak up against anti-Semitism and all hate.